Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I am your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I'm very excited to have a special guest on who's a familiar face. But before I do that, I want to do a little housekeeping. I want to remind my audience that our merch store is open. So go to mormonbookreviews.com and you can get some really cool swag. I guess it's swag if I give it to you. So if you buy it, it's just merch, right? But you can get some uh, really just a, we're expanding our inventory of different items that you can get, including phone cases and mouse pads and water bottles, you name it. The hoodies, I just sold a hoodie the other day, so really exciting. And I also want to remind my audience that I'm doing the book giveaway of the two Jonathan Neville books that I have duplicates of, Infinite Goodness and Moroni's America. All that I ask that you do is, first of all, these entries have to be in by May 31st of 2022. And I would like for you to send me an email to mormonbookreviews at gmail.com. I want you to have in the subject line, book contest, and I want your name and your address. Now, I will be at the Mormon History Association in June, so if you're going to be there and you're one of the winners, I can just hand it to you, or I'll send it to you in the mail. Either way, the drawing will be done after May 31st to get those entries in. Thomas Murphy, uh, Dr. Thomas Murphy, anthropologist. Uh, we had a real blockbuster episode when you did your response to Rod Meldrum, and uh, you know it was really cool because you reached out to me to initially as well for to tell your story about your interactions with evangelicals. And you wanted to come on my program and do that. And I wanna thank you so much for doing that. And you can go on any number of podcasts and it really means a lot to me that you wanna to come to me and tell these stories. And that's really cool. It's, I just think it's a real privilege to have you on. And so you reached out to me recently because of course we have Under the Banner of Heaven, uh, the limited series on Hulu produced by FX. And uh, it, you felt that this was, uh, it really started getting you to contemplate about your background and things that happened in your life. And you decided this is the time to have that conversation. And uh, so T Thomas, I just, you're here to tell your story. And one of the quotes you have is just a domestic, which you took out of the, uh, out of one of the episodes of Under the Banner of Heaven, uh, an invitation to retrospection on violence and humanity. Um, Thomas, welcome to the program. And I'm excited to hear your story. Well, Steve, thank you for, for welcoming me back. Uh, I, I reached out to you because a lot of people have been asking me my opinion about Under the Banner of Heaven. That happened back when the book came out, uh, I think about 2004, 2005. I, a lot at that time, and, and it happened a lot recently uh, with the Hulu series. And I thought about writing out my response and I just thought, no, I think it'd be better just to tell it, tell it in, in an interview. And I recalled the, the dynamic that we had had before. And I thought you're, and as I was thinking about possible places to tell it, uh, you announced that you were going to do a series on Under the Banner of Heaven. And so I thought, oh, well, there we go. That, that tells me where I ought to go. And uh, so I'm delighted to be here. I'm coming to you from the, the lands of the Coast Salish nations of Western Washington. Uh, and I, I teach anthropology at Edmonds College and just north of the Seattle area. So one thing I wanted to say is that um, I just received this book in the mail yesterday from the University of Illinois Press. I want to thank them for rushing this to me to make sure that we had this in time for the interview. And this morning, um, and the reason why we, I got this book was Thomas recommended it because you wrote a chapter in this book called Revising Eternity, 27 Latter-day Saint Men Reflect on Modern Relationships, edited by Holly Welker and Patrick Hugh. Uh, Mason wrote the foreword. And then we were off camera talking about how you don't really hear men's voices talking about uh, these kind of stories, marriage and relationships. 
And uh, man, I'll tell you, I read the chapter this morning. I was really blown away by your story. So I got a preview of what we're going to be talking about. So I would encourage people, I'm going to leave a link uh, in the show notes for you to purchase this book from the University of Illinois Press. I strongly recommend it. I read some of the titles of some of the other articles I've written. I think just about uh, men, but also women will find these stories compelling and interesting. All right, Thomas. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say that a bit that I'm going to share is, is, is in here as well. But there were parts that we had space limitations and I had to cut uh, a significant amount of what I'd originally written that talked about my childhood abuse uh, and, and the child abuse I experienced as a, as a kid. And so that, that got reduced significantly in that published version. And the published version focuses uh, mostly on my relationship with my wife. And, and in a sense, we kind of ran away from abusive childhoods and, together. And, and it focuses on our relationship of healing uh, from that. And so I think it's a good complement to the, the story that I'm going to tell today uh, that explores domestic violence uh, in Mormon homes, child abuse specifically, uh, but also murder uh, in my family. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I, I hesitate just to give a, a quick response when somebody asks me, well, what do you think about Under the Banner of Heaven? Is because it hits home. It hits home in a way that is deeply personal and difficult to talk about. Uh, so I'm going to do my best. But before I get into my personal story, I did want to start with some general observations about Under the Banner of Heaven. I, and I don't see this as a literary critique. You, 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 you've had a little bit of that with Rebecca Biblioteca and with uh, uh, Jim Bennett. Uh, and, you know, they, they've offered some, some insightful critiques. Uh, and I want to, you know, offer more concise uh, overview. For one, I think both the book uh, and the Hulu series invite readers and viewers to examine the cultural roots of violence in our communities. And I think that's a great opportunity for us to really stop and think about why do people kill each other? You know, why do we harm each other? And why do we do it sometimes anyway, in the name of religion? What, and what is the connection between religion and violence? And, and that's, you know, often a, a critique that's put forward of, of the book and series is that John Krakauer maybe exaggerates or over does the connection between violence and religion. And I think the critics also exaggerate his argument. So, you know, I think, you know, it's been years since I read his book uh, and I did not reread it for this, for this interview, but I have been watching the Hulu series. Uh, I will note, I, I had actually, I gave away my book collection, my Mormon book collection at a certain point when I, I gave up uh, Mormon studies in 2008 and I donated all my books and that was one of the ones I donated and I haven't repurchased it. So uh, I decided much later, 220, almost a decade later, not quite, uh, 2014 I think is when I really started doing Mormon studies again. Uh, and I hadn't been active in it for almost a decade at that point. Uh, and then I have had to rebuild my library. <laughs> so, so my recollection of the book when I read it back when it first came out uh, is that, that some of these critiques of Krakauer's 
and violence overstate his argument. Uh, and that uh, he does draw and, and talk about some difficult issues in Mormon history uh, that could that are have a violent component. Uh, and we see that effort through the flashbacks in the Hulu series to try to bring that in. I think it's more challenging in the film than, than in the book to do that. Uh, and when I see this, this film that Dustin Lance Black has, has put together as the screenwriter, I'm excited to see what I call an uncorrelated account, an uncorrelated account of uh, Mormon history uh, or a particular incident in Mormon history and, and, and some re related uh, episodes. And what I mean by uncorrelated is that in the 1960s, the LDS church you know, implemented a rigorous program of review of its curriculum and materials that was very authoritarian uh, and reduced the, the variety of voices uh, and tried to, you know, kind of to franchise Mormonism, to make it more like McDonald's than a church, you know, uh, and, than a religion. And, and so in that effort to correlate our religion, we get we get the the result that you can go to an LDS chapel anywhere in the world and it's going to look familiar. Okay, and that, I think that was their their corporate mentality that they were trying to achieve to to create a McMormonism, uh, and that has some benefits, you know, in terms of the structure and organization and adapting the church to a global environment. I understand some of the reasons that they would do it, but one of the downsides of the the correlation is that the diverse voices from within the faith tradition uh, are silenced. Uh, and so here we've got Dustin Lance Black bringing forth a story of, of his. And I, I think it's important to see that this, that he, he plays in it a significant role in the fictionalized aspects of the Brenda Lafferty murder that is at the center of this, and her child's murder that's at the center of the, this book and series. Uh, another aspect that I really like about the, the series in particular is the influence of Lindsay Hansen Park and Troy Williams, who are both, both good friends of mine. Uh, and they, they show that there's more than one way to Mormon. And that's a theme that, that Lindsay Hansen Park in her work with Sunstone really emphasizes. Sunstone's a symposium that, uh, that's held in different regions. The, there's an annual one in Salt Lake that I'll be at this summer and the end of July. And I uh, hope to see you and maybe some other uh, yep. listeners there. Uh, and so Lindsay Hansen Park's kind of theme of more than one way to Mormon really comes out in this series in that you don't get just a single portrait of Mormons as murderers, which you know Ron and Dan Lafferty certainly fit into that. But you you see a spectrum of people. You see Brenda Lafferty's uh, faithful uh, perspective and progressive uh, to some extent, at least in relationship to to the rest of the Lafferty family. And so you see that tension within. Uh, LDS families uh, portrayed and showing that that there's more than one way to Mormon, right? And uh, so I I really think that's a, a 
a real strength of the series. I will say that, especially that first episode, just kind of hit me a little bit hard on the kitschiness of it, you know, that it, it was uh, almost overdone in its idiosyncrasies of what it is to be Mormon. I, the, although I have to say, you know, every, everything like talking about Heavenly Father all the time or calling people brother and sister, uh, having to pray about major decisions, those are all familiar to me, right? Okay, I recognize them as being Mormon. So I can't say no, but, but it just, it was an overload of that uh, in, in that, that first episode. But it, I think as, as it's moved on, it doesn't feel as disjointed. But, you know, I have to say those are markers of Mormonism. Mm. I just, I just, as a side note, I just had a quick question. Are you glad that they made a point to have a Native American deputy in the series? Talk about maybe that aspect of it as well. Yeah, I, I do think that, you know, he's represented, and I believe that character is fictional, right? But as long with Jeb Pyrie, uh, they're, they're both uh, fictional characters, but uh, it in, enabled them to provide a, a Native American perspective. And because uh, Native people are such an important part of the Mormon story, particularly the Book of Mormon story, I, I think that's a great way to bring in some of these issues. And I, I really think that's what uh, Dustin Lance Black is trying to do. He's trying to, to tell a story of a faith crisis. And so what you get that is layered on top of the story of Brenda Lafferty's murders. And, you know, so it's similar to in the sense that, that John Krakauer was trying to respond to 9-11 uh, to the the attack on uh, the Twin Towers uh, by uh, Muslim extremists, by exploring extremism and religion. And so John Krakauer layered that on top of the, the Lafferty family story. And then Dustin Lance Black is layering his own faith crisis on to this story as well. And I think it's important to see them as multiple stories and to recognize that this is not Brenda Lafferty's story. And I think Sharon Weeks, who's Brenda's sister, just wrote this incredibly powerful editorial that's in the Deseret News uh, about how this isn't the story of her sister. And I, I was deeply moved by that. I really think that people need to keep that in mind uh, as a critique, but also as just a way to watch it and to recognize that the multiple stories that are at play and that, that there is, there's more to the story than is told, even though there is some breadth to it, it's, you know, it's not all there. You know, I just, I've been actually, I've reached out to Sharon and um, she's expressed interest in coming on the program to tell Brenda's story and also her story. So hopefully uh, down the road, we'll be able to get the, we'll, we'll be able to honor Brenda and, and, her, and her daughter. Uh, in, in I would love I would love to see that episode uh, yeah. so I uh, and and I just want to say publicly to her thank you for 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 telling your story uh, and for the work that she's done uh, she's been quite active in uh, opposing the death penalty which is quite interesting given this this whole set setting but uh, I will when I approached the 
the book, I, I found some interesting things because, so the book was written as a response to 9-11. As I said, that, that story of, of, of the Twin Towers is kind of layered on to the way that, that John Krakauer tells uh, the Lafferty murder story. Uh, and there were some interesting connections between the way John Krakauer responded and the way I responded. So I was a new faculty member at uh, Edmonds uh, Community College, as it was called at the time. Uh, and I had just, uh, well, I, I had just helped organize a, a big lecture on campus of uh, bringing Sherman Alexi to, to, to our campus. And in the aftermath of 9-11, people started turning to me to organize some events. And in fact, I be, became a important part of my job to run a lecture series uh, in the next few years. And so I organized the campus lecture series uh, to address and help the community respond to 9-11. And I, there are both some similarities in what I did and some differences in what, what John Krakauer did that I think are worth noting. In, in my approaches, I wanted, I wanted our community to recognize that Muslims who fly planes into buildings are only even a fringe element of Islam. And so I worked very closely with, with Muslim communities locally to bring representatives uh, to campus to tell their stories in their own words. Uh, and not just representatives of Islam, but of Judaism and Christianity. And then I diversified, including Hinduism, Mormonism, indigenous religions, and, and asking people to talk about their stories of peace and violence and to get some complexity. And John Krakauer, on the other hand, gives an outsider's view of Mormonism. Okay, so where Dustin Lance Black and Lindsay Hansen Park and Troy Williams are providing very much an insider perspective, Krakauer's was an outsider's perspective, although I, I think he was uh, careful in his research and, 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 and tried to be fair, but he also uh, looked at it from that, from his outsider perspective. And so I wanted, I didn't want to ignore outsider perspectives. And I also brought into the lecture series experts in uh, international relations and, uh, and, and in politics. And so we had kind of the, the combination of people's voices uh, and the professional experts. The other thing we did is we put together people on our campus uh, that were represented these different groups and, and put them together on a panel and talked about their experiences. What is it like to be a Muslim on our campus? Uh, and, you know, because we had local situations of uh, attacks on, uh, on a mosque and, you know, we had some important things to address. We also had, at the time I had a student in my class who was from Syria and her father uh, had been a, a pilot in the Syrian Air Force and in fact had uh, flown planes for the, the president of Syria. And um, I find out one day that she was picked up by the INS uh, at six o'clock in the morning. They broke down the door in her home and arrested her and her father and her brother. 
and took them to a detention camp. And members of the, the Muslim community that I'd been working with, uh, one who would later become a congressional representative, she's currently a congressional representative for Washington, her name's Pramila Jayapal. Uh, and I, I, she ran an organization called the Hate Free Zone. And I worked with her to lobby on behalf of this family, the Hamoui family that was detained really unjustly uh, just because they happened to be Muslim and happened to have a pilot in the family. Uh, and uh, it, it was a difficult time. So, you know, I, I just wanted to share a little bit of, of, of my experiences with that. The other thing that, that I did is I developed a special topics course on campus along with uh, several other social scientists uh, on the global roots of terror. And we offered that course uh, to the students to give a, a chance to earn some, uh, some credits towards their degree that would allow them a place to process the feelings that they were having and, and, and the, the, the concerns about being in this time of particular difficulty nationally and internationally. Uh, and in my section, I provided the anthropological and the religious studies perspective, because that's my, my training. And we looked at humans as one of the most violent, but also one of the most cooperative animals, you know, kind of from an evolutionary perspective. We, we are surprisingly violent as a species and have committed tremendous acts of destruction on the world and on other species and on ourselves. Uh, and that's a part of our story. It's a troubling part of our story. Uh, but at the same time, we're also one of the most cooperative. We work together with each other uh, and can do tremendous things, build enormous cities, uh, build, you know, take care of the poor. We can uh, care and, and love for each other. Families are just such an important part of our social structure, right? So humans are this fascinating animal with a mixture of violence and compassion and cooperation. And you can actually see that, that violent component and that cooperative component come together. And the way that, that I wanted, I tried to tell that story in that lecture is interestingly very similar to the way that Krakauer approached it. Uh, and that is, I keyed in on the fact, the coincidence, if you will, that the Mountain Meadows Massacre, at least one, one of the, the, the biggest days of, of murder, occurred on September 11th, 1857. Uh, and so that uh, kind of is eerie on one sense, right? Why is that? Uh, and But then that was also one of the biggest mass murders in US history uh, before the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, and not counting the slaughter of many Native Americans. I should say the big, one of the biggest murders of white people, although there were some Native people in those, those Baker and Fancher parties as well. But uh, the Mountain Meadows Massacre is extremely violent, but also strikingly cooperative. Okay, this was an event where the Mormon militia uh, at a time of conflict with the, the United States, they call it, you know, the Utah War. There were 
federal troops on the way to Utah to remove Brigham Young as the governor. And, you know, so the, the Mormons felt under attack, okay? And uh, they respond by dressing up uh, as Indians and uh, staging a faux attack uh, and then uh, pretending to negotiate on behalf of the, the, the Baker-Fancher party uh, a truce with the Southern Paiute Indians, which was really the white people dressed in paint, uh, maybe a couple of Indians, but probably not. I mean, that, that's a big historical question. Southern Paiutes say they were not participants. Uh, there's some historical evidence to suggest there might've been one or two, uh, but, uh, and those were uh, probably children in Mormon homes that didn't have a lot of choice. So anyway, the, they, after this supposed truce, they uh, provide Mormon guards. And I remember hearing about this in seminary when I was a kid that just, just ooh, ate at me. These, these Mormon guards promise that they will protect the Fancher party and they disarm them. And then they put a Mormon guard next to the person with a rifle. And then at a certain point, they execute them. This is, if you think about, it's, it's incredibly violent, but it's also incredibly cooperative. And, and so it, it captures that that amazing human capacity for cooperation and the repugnant capacity for violence at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is, a, it is a, an important story for addressing the question. And so both Krakauer and I independently landed on that same story to address this question. And I, I think it's fair to do that, oh, even yeah. though it's, it's difficult it's a difficult one to do. The other thing I did in that course is I assigned this book, and this is a book I really recommend if, to your viewers. It's, 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 it's a little older now because this came out in the early 2000s, Abraham on Trial by the anthropologist Carol Delaney at, at Stanford University. The, and the subtitle is The Social Legacy of Biblical Myth. Uh, and Carol Delaney examines Abraham's, from, from the Old Testament, his problematic sacrifice of his own child, which is a story at the heart of three religious traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And the idea that God would ask a, someone to murder their own child is horrific and and. and frightening and a powerful, also a powerful way to, to get our attention, right? If we want a, a, a story that's riveting. Um, it's troubling that sacrifice rather than protection of children then becomes a focus of faith. What she argues is that, you know, somehow these stories become utilized as a, a way of justifying our own violence against children. And in my lectures, I tried to look at it within the context of a cultural evolution, too, that, we, you know, human societies at the time these stories probably originated 
I, we're shifting from family and kin-centered societies to centralized state-level societies. And state, these state-level societies that began to form armies you know, or organized militias, uh, they needed the alliance of people to a centralized authority rather than to their own family and kin. And sometimes that would mean killing your own. Uh, and so stories like this emerge not just in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, but you can find stories like this in the Bhagavad Gita, in Hinduism, uh, and you know elsewhere in these uh, religious traditions around the world. And these stories where people are asked to kill their own, uh, that's part of the evolution of human society and, and that, that move from that family-centered to a state-centered society. Mm. Uh, and Ape, Carol Delaney looks at how the, these stories also naturalize and sacralize, make sacred the patriarchal power, the power of a man. Because why, why do we assume that it, Isaac is Abraham's property to begin with? Right. Why could he sacrifice? What about Isaac? What is what say does Isaac have in this thing, in this story? Right. Mm -hmm. And we don't even consider the question. You know, That's right. we 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 could look at that story and and celebrate the role of the angel who intervenes, uh, instead of celebrating Abraham's uh, willingness to sacrifice his own child. Right. And so there's different ways to look at that that story. I uh, and you know well and this is the thing they, thomas is that we see the misuse of scripture all the time that we have stories even to this day of people who are told by god to kill their children and this is um and you know this is an ongoing thing that happens and also or kill their child because they're gay or any number of you know um or or honor killing in the middle east and it's, it saturates the Judeo-Christian world in, in historically, and we still have modern, modern manifestations of it to this day. Yeah, in fact, she, Carol Delaney talks about a trial of a father in California who murdered his youngest child in 1990 and kind of, you know, looks at all the press coverage and the trial where he's portrayed as a madman, right, uh, rather than a revered patriarchal figure. Uh, and... Uh, the other thing that is important coming out of that book is the role of between men and women. So the, in the biblical narratives, you get this concept of seed and this concept carries over into the, the Book of Mormon as well. Uh, and this concept of a seed as the, the patriarchal contribution to life that men plant a seed in the womb of a woman uh, and it's the man seed that come, that produces that child that uh, undervalues the contribution of women uh, to the reproductive process. Uh, women provide, you know, they didn't understand at the time, right? They didn't understand DNA or uh, uh, the biology of, of sperms and eggs. And, you know, we, but we know today that the men contribute the sperm and women contribute the egg 
and that half of your chromosomes come from your mother and half come from your father. Yeah, we, the men are and, provide the, the men provide the fertilizer, which makes right. for a completely different way of biology, which tells me folks don't take these scriptures too literally because it gets that wrong. Uh, the man is the fertilizer. <laughs> yeah, and you know, so the, the and women, of course, provide the the safe place for for the the life to to emerge, right? So they don't just provide half of the in genetic endowment; they provide that 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 place. And so that patriarchal kind of way of thinking under undervalues uh, women's contribution as well. So that's how I had approached this, and I, I bring this up as kind of uh, as an alternative way and as a complementary way to look at under banner the under the banner of heaven and religious narratives. And if it's all right now, I'd like to transition to my own childhood and violence in my yeah, faith journey. Absolutely, and uh, you know, I I've um, I read your uh, your your chapter, and then of course you you sent me some um, information to kind of peruse beforehand and. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing this story because I know this is uh, you've had a, a very tough life, very difficult childhood, and uh, you just tell your story, Thomas. Yeah. Well, you know, my earliest years were not characterized by violence, uh, and so that gave me kind of a perspective when when things started to change. Uh, but I mean, in my early years, there was my parents were. Uh, they did spank us occasionally or swat us. Uh, so there was some physical violence, but it was never, never done with the intent of hurting the child, that it was more of correcting or, a, a child or redirecting or getting your attention, that sort of thing. Uh, and not what I would experience later in terms of, of the brutality. And I think it's important to, you know, kind of set, provide a little bit of setting for, for my childhood. My mother and father were both from Southern Idaho, but they moved to California shortly before I was born. And so I was born in Southern California, but then we moved back to Idaho when I was very young before my memories started, about a year and a half, and then lived on a farm outside of uh, Burley, uh, Idaho, along the Snake River. Uh, uh, and so those early years were on on the farm and my mother is a descendant of mormon pioneers going way 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 back uh, she converted my father uh, to mormonism so he joined uh, at, at at her encouragement okay but his his background is largely protestant evangelical background uh, we talked a little bit about my my relatives on my father's side in our first interview uh, and the kind of that evangelical uh, component of my family that was an important part of my growing up. And for my father and mother at that time, church was a social thing. It, it, you know, I, mean, I think they were believers, but I don't think they were, they were not dogmatic. Attendance was irregular. Uh, and of course, part of that was living on a dairy farm, okay, because a dairy farm, the, the cows produce their milk and you, you, you have a set schedule you've got to work with and that schedule often conflicted with church meetings. And in those days, this is in the 70s, 
you know, we we didn't go to church in a three or two hour block. We went to church in the morning at Sunday school and priesthood in the morning, and then we had sacrament meeting in the afternoon. And so, you know, our our attendance was sporadic at best, and and my dad's priorities too. I mean, he would he would rather uh, go water skiing in between that when he'd take a day off on Sunday. He wouldn't work. He'd go water skiing instead. And he'd go with the bishop <laughs> and then the bishop would go to sacrament meeting later. Sometimes we would go. Uh, and, you know, so there was a very different approach to religion than I would get later. It was very casual approach to religion and very socially oriented. Mm. Uh, but things would change in 1974 when my parents divorced. Uh, and on both sides, actually, my mother and father uh, church attendance would increase in, after that, and uh, and and both of them would marry people who were more devout in in the church or more committed to dogmatic in their religious perspectives. Uh, I would live with most of the time with my mother and stepfather, uh, and we would visit my father on holidays and uh, in the summers for a few weeks at a time, but. You know, my child was really in relationship to my mother and my stepfather. If you and don't I, mind me asking, um, what was the cause of the divorce? Uh, well, infidelity. Okay. My mother hooked up with the home teacher. Okay. Uh, and I think that might have been part of it. You know, my dad's... Uh, casual approach to the church versus somebody who was more committed. I think he made promises to her that he did not follow through on. And I didn't know this at the time, I should say. Uh, I only found out uh, several years later, because at the time we'd asked my dad that question. We'd asked him, you know, why did you, why did you leave? Because we saw it as him leaving, right? And, and he said, I can't tell you now, but I'll tell you when you're older. And he told us when I was around around 12 my mother told told us a couple of years later uh and confessed what what she had done and and deeply apologized you know but uh and you know both my parents are past so that's why i went ahead and answered that question well thank you for sharing this for sharing yeah but yeah that's a difficult a difficult yeah. reason uh and you know and, and again, it's not something I was aware of at the time or till a few years later. So I was about, I was uh, seven years old at the time. Okay. And my mother, both of them actually ended up in new relationships pretty quickly. Uh, that situation with the home teacher did not pan out like they had imagined. Uh, they usually don't, <laughs> you know? Uh, and uh, so, my mother uh, met my stepfather, uh, Bill Bean, uh, at church. Uh, and he at the time was wearing a, a cast on his leg. Uh, and she said that him in a cast and crutches made her feel safe with him, which you know was actually not what we would experience. Safety and security uh, was, was lost in that moment of her making that choice. And, hmm. and they rushed into a marriage. Uh, and I think she still had to wait for a temple divorce before she could 
Mary in the temple. So uh, she, they had a civil wedding and, uh, and then later uh, sealed in the temple. And my stepfather, Bill, brought into our home really strong anti-government attitudes. Uh, he was also a convert, uh, like my father, uh, and a relatively new convert at the time. And so I don't mean to suggest that all of these attitudes that he had were formed by Mormonism, although they made Mormonism attractive to him and a particular brand of Mormonism attractive to him. Uh, and so he had these, this strong resistance to government and to authority. And I think part of that was rooted in his father, uh, who was a chiropractor. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, chiropractors and, and the medical association have a long, torturous relationship. As the United States uh, and, you know, around the world and other countries as well, as medical professions uh, specialized or professionalized, uh, chiropractors found themselves more on the outs of, mm -hmm. of things uh, in kind of institutionalized medicine in the United States. Uh, and so there was a, an anti-government attitude among many chiropractors. Sure. Uh, they, they, they resented regulation, especially of medicine. Uh, and there, there is some, I will say, knowing a little bit about medical anthropology these days that there, there's a, there is a monopolization of medical practice that occurred and that was in some senses problematic. So there's some legitimacy to some of their concerns, mm -hmm. but there were also on the part of the state was a desire to protect people and protect people from quack medicine. And some of the, the practices of chiropractics did not stand up to rigorous scientific review. And, uh, and, and so that was you know, part of that tension. And so ironically, while he had this distrust of medical establishment, he worked in a hospital. <laughs> and he was a, a, a kind of custodian, uh, later maintenance supervisor, so you can in, in, a, in a hospital setting in Burley and then later in Pocatello. Uh, and so while he uh, doesn't trust the medical establishment, that's where he works. And so he's both dependent upon them. And I think that's part of that resentment, right? You're in that situation where uh, you can see the, what you see as problems with the medical establishment, yet you're, you're stuck with it. And you're part of the system that you despise. Uh, and for him, that involved, uh, you know, preferring herbs over medicines. Uh, it didn't mean never going to the hospital. I mean, we, I did, I had my appendix removed at 10 years old and went to the hospital where he worked and, and had it done. And, you know, I mean, you know, there, it wasn't, it wasn't a point, it wasn't that extreme. Okay. But, you know, let's say taking care of a cold or even when he had pneumonia, uh, we were using, uh, herbs to treat rather than, you know, over-the-counter uh, medicines or, or prescriptions. Uh, and so that was very much a part of my, my childhood. Hmm. It, he'd also, 
had quite a ranting about taxes. So that's also very similar to the Lafferty brothers, but not, not quite as militant as they were. You know, he paid his taxes, at least as far as I knew. My, my dad, my biological dad, Roy Murphy, uh, who ran his own businesses and he had kind of a, he was just, he had a, he, he paid his taxes, but only what he was required to do. And he was very adept uh, at using his businesses and his families uh, to legally avoid paying taxes. Sure. And, you know, and, and so, you know, there, there was a little bit of that on, on both sides of the family. Hmm. Uh, but in, in terms of my stepfather, Bill, it, it was often framed in a very negative way that government's trying to, to, to take advantage of us. And, you know, and with my dad, it, it, it was more of a cooperative relationship with the government. You know, <laughs> they take care of the streets and, you know, they do good, important things, but I don't want to pay more than I have to, you know. Uh, and one of the striking things that my stepfather did when he moved into the house is he threw out the television. He called it the boob tube. That was his term. And he used to say that Satan ran the networks. And back then, it's not like today with, with TV, there were, there were three channels, uh, the three main networks. And then if you're lucky in your area, you had PBS too, or local PBS station. And uh, that was it. That's all you had on, on television. And TV was actually quite a bit more regulated in those days than it is now. Uh, and uh, so for him, it was a way for the government to get into, and Satan, to use the government to get into our heads and into our home and uh, and to kind of penetrate that sanctuary. And so he threw it out. And so I spent most of my childhood without a television from, from seven till 18, we did get, or 17, we did get a TV again when I was 17. Uh, and uh, so the only television I watched was either at relatives or friends. And I even, I even in sixth grade, I ran a television program for school. Hmm. Uh, we did a public television uh, show in our grade school and I won best director and I never even saw my own show because wow. <laughs> that I won, won the, the, the prize for. But, uh, you know, that there's kind of this strange relationship with television. Uh, so our television was basically replaced by gun racks. And so those became a very I important part a quick of our question. home. This is, okay, yeah. gun racks is crazy. But <laughs> do you think, you know, there, and I grew up, you know, in the age of television big time. That was, you know, it was very similar to the age of television in the 50s where you only had a handful of channels. We, 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 I remember when we first finally got cable. But overall, do you think it was a good thing or a bad thing that you weren't in front of that, in front of the boob tube all the time as a child? Uh, you know, I... At the time, I resented it, okay, because I, I felt like I was different. I couldn't fit in with my friends. My friends would be talking about these TV shows, and I didn't know anything about them. And I still, you know, I'm really good at trivia, but when I play trivial games, like Trivial Pursuit, we used to play all the time, you get to those television show questions, and I just bomb, you know. I mean, I'd be good in every other category, but yeah. uh, bad in those. So there's some deficits, if you will, as a result of, of that upbringing but i learned to love books uh, and i really turned to reading instead and and that's been a blessing in my life i really i really love that and i i still actually don't watch a lot of television 
my wife is a very big fan of television and uh, and so we'll sometimes we try to figure that out, you know, what is the right balance? Uh, and, uh, you know, she watches a lot more and I watch a lot less and we get along really well that way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, but I don't, I don't judge her for it. I don't think that Satan is getting into her head or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, but, you know, that's just her preference, what she grew up with. I grew up reading books. And so I would rather sit in, on the couch and read a book. I'm, and that's why you were so much better in all those other categories besides TV. It could have been the other way around. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and my stepfather also talked often about the end times and about joining a militia. That was always more am, uh, aspiration than reality. A lot of talk, but not a lot of action. Uh, but he really you know, wanted to be in a militia. He subscribed to like the John Birch Society's okay. magazines and and I used to read those when I was a kid because I was a reader. And I don't know that he read that much himself, but he did admire Legrand Richards and would talk about marvelous work and wonder his book uh, as an important part of his faith journey. He was also a big fan of Ezra Taft Benson, uh, who was uh, a, a church leader at the time. Who he, he was at, been in the Eisenhower administration, Secretary of Agriculture, and had some pretty strong John Birch Society type uh, views. Uh, and uh, along with him, Cleon Skousen and his uh, different dispensations. And uh, those were important ways that he oriented himself in the world. And so these are the same intellectual influences, if you will, that, that affect the Lafferty brothers. Sure. And I just want to real quick too, just remember, I did a three-part interview with Matt Harris talking about these individuals in particular, Ezra Tuff Benson. I recommend you check it out. I love Matt Harris's work. You know, he's really, he really gets this stuff and understands it quite well. You know, and, you know, a big part of that Mormon childhood was a, a, an obsessive food storage. Okay. The, the, the church leadership was often encouraging food storage. Well, we took it to an extra level, you know, you're supposed to have one year's food storage and we tried to have more than that. Uh, and not just it, food storage, but only for us, it was only certain types of food because of this criticism of, of the establishment. Uh, we were not allowed to, by my stepfather to have uh, processed grains, any processed foods like no white bread. Uh, and it was kind of an irony because I couldn't have white bread at home, but we'd go to church on Sunday and sacrament or the Eucharist, what other people would call it, uh, would be uh, white bread and water, you know, but I couldn't eat white bread at home. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so there's this really strong resistance to processed sugar or flour. And we actually ground our own wheat by hand, uh, made our own bread. Uh, and we raised and ate rabbits and later goats and chickens and uh, turned our backyard into a vegetable garden and, and an orchard uh, and, you know, raising our own food. Those were important parts of that, that, that upbringing. He also introduced into the family daily scripture study, and uh, that would usually occur in the mornings uh, before breakfast around the kitchen table. <laughs> Imagine getting the whole family up. Uh, you know, there were four of us kids from my mom's marriage, three from my stepfather's marriage, so the seven kids. 
getting them up at around the, at, you know, it ranged in age from, you know, my sister would have been about four years old to my stepsister, the oldest uh, was 17. You know, so you, this whole range of, of ages and getting all of them up around the table to read. Uh, and that was what, you know, it really, it was my introduction to the Book of Mormon. And at, at the time I really in, enjoyed it. Uh, enjoyed reading, I enjoyed reading and it. They, I found the Book of Mormon fascinating. Uh, and, but I also learned, I was really surprised. Here I was seven years old and I could, I could read pretty good. I mean, there were words I would encounter in the Book of Mormon that I had to sound out and stuff. But listening to my stepfather and my older stepbrothers who were teenagers, they, they couldn't read most of the words. They needed a lot of help. And here I was, a seven-year-old, and I could read far better than they could. Uh, and it was also kind of my exposure to, wow, this difference. And I later learned from my stepfather, he never read a book cover to cover. Hmm. And uh, I mean, until the Book of Mormon, until we were doing it as a family, but he never sat down himself and read a book cover to cover. He said he almost did it once with Treasure Island when he was in high school. Hmm. Uh, and so it was a very different way of, of, of thinking about the world. I was very book oriented and, and, and I, not so much for him. And in my mom would emphasize that uh, when we're reading these stories, say of Lehi and Sariah in the Book of Mormon, uh, that we're reading about our own ancestors because on my mother's side, I, we had a, a distant ancestor. I would later learn her name is Susanna uh, Ferguson, uh, who was Mohawk. We, at the time I learned that she was, she was an Indian princess or a Lamanite. Uh, and that's the way that, that I learned it. But with the, the Book of Mormon was more than just a sacred history of the Americas. It was the story of our ancestors. That was really emphasized to us uh, for my mother. Uh, and uh, that struggle between Nephi and Laman, uh, or Nephi and Sam and Laman and Lemuel that starts out the Book of Mormon, was really formative in the in my self-conception. Uh, seeing Laman and Lemuel as wicked and disobedient and cursed with a dark skin, uh, all coming from the Book of Mormon, well, that would get a lot of emphasis in our family discussions. Uh, and uh, Nephi and Sam is righteous and obedient and light-skinned. Uh, and so that skin color stuff would, would be emphasized in the way that we read the Book of Mormon. Uh, and would play out in this violence in some frightening ways. Uh, I also remember reading the, the story of Nephi's murder of Laban, where it says, better that one man should perish than a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. Um, and that was troubling to me, that story, that idea that God would tell somebody to murder somebody, uh, and, or an angel of God would do that. And uh, but that was part of the upbringing, and it would also come back to haunt us in the in the violence that that followed. The another component of our childhood was family home evenings and family councils. And 
uh, family home evenings were on Monday. And when we got together as a family, other times it's family council, right? And family home evenings were maybe a little more devotional and, and family councils were more uh, policy or rules, you know, that sort of thing emphasized. But these became a spectacle of domestic violence and child abuse and racism. Mm. Uh, and my stepfather would use family councils as a place to beat, especially his teenage children in front of the full family. Uh, we all got our turn. Okay, so we, we were all beaten, but really the worst abuse was of my two older stepbrothers and of my older brother who was older than, than me. Uh, they, they took the brunt of it. Uh, and uh, I got enough, I got enough to know I didn't want any more of it. <laughs> uh, but this, this abuse was both verbal so they're frequent yelling and screaming to, to intimidate, you know, and, and just, you know, to get as this patriarchal father to get his way, he would yell and push you around that way uh, and, and intimidate you through, through loud voice. Uh, and then he would have these beating spectacles that were brutal. Hmm. So it, it he'd do different things but sometimes he would remove his belt so he'd be very dramatic in the way he would remove his belt kind of to get the emphasis on you know look what i'm doing uh make himself big and strong and and he'd rip that belt out of his trousers and and then he'd take it and he'd snap it and snap it and snap it in our faces you know and then uh <clears throat> he would you know, whoever's turn it was to get beat. I, uh, he'd have him in the middle of the living room and uh, start beating him with that belt. Or sometimes he'd use a stick he'd, and he'd make us go out and cut our own sticks. Wow. So we'd have to cut our own sticks so that we could be beat with him. Uh, and uh, I'd try to figure out which one's going to hurt the least, you know. Uh, but the, he would, and, he'd call that a switch. And I, I was like, that was a word I wasn't, you know, I, I don't use anymore. And I, I was like, look, because a lot of this, as I was remembering this in the last uh, week or so, as I've been thinking about it, I, his language keeps coming back to me. And it, some of it is, um, you know, boob tube or switch or uh, some of these other cotton picking these, these terms that he used to use. Uh, I guess they're, I don't hear them anymore. And I don't, you know. It's fascinating because in these, I, the, I, yeah. Adrian Peterson, who was an NFL football player, he used the term switch and he had his kids cut down the branch that they were in. in this, he was suspended for the NFL for a while for doing this. So there's culturally, there's, this is all there. This is, this is. Yeah. And so when he would hit us, it wasn't, you know, when, when my mom would spank us, it would be on the butt, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or my dad. But when my stepfather did it, it, it would be everywhere from the neck down to your ankles Jeez. and uh, it, and and designed to bruise and draw blood. And, you know, and while he's doing this, he would scream at you. I'm going to beat the cotton pick and tar out of you, even if it kills me. Wow. Cotton pick and tar out of you. Was he from the South? He was from California. 
Wow, that's interesting. But uh, I mean, he's I don't I don't know where his ancestors. Uh, they may have had some southern influence. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely kind of that that language, uh, and very racialized language. You know, cotton picking was his favorite curse word. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I don't ever hear that anymore. I don't no. know. You live in the south. Maybe you hear it there. Heard uh, it in the Midwest growing up. Yeah, uh, but they are, are they become archaic now. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, in in terms of you got to understand this in the terms of the, the Book of Mormon, as I was processing this as a child here, I was reading these stories that Nephi, and, and by being obedient, uh, he keeps his white skin and layman turns dark because he's he's wicked. And so then and then my stepfather's talking about cotton pick and tar beat the cotton pick and tar i mean that's beat the black out of you okay that mm -hmm. you're not going to become you're going to stay white and so there was this kind of fragility of of our whiteness and that might have been you know his own unease over my mom having lamanite ancestors i don't know for sure i never heard him express it that way but it you know it may have been that, that, you know, it may have ju just been his internal uh, way of orienting the world and, and the language that he'd grown up and, and grown up with that was quite racialized. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, he would say other things, though, too, that were directly out of the Book of Mormon, like better that one child should suffer than a family should dwindle in unbelief, you know, when, he, when we're having this family council, you know, and, you know, echoing back that Nephi murdering Laban uh, and, you know, using, using scripture to justify his violence. So when I see in the, under the banner of heaven, I see Ammon Lafferty, boy, he reminds me of my stepfather, you know, and the way he's beating his children in public. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it really echoes really strongly in my experience. And my stepfather too, wouldn't just do this at home. I mean, at home, you know, it's just our family. Uh, but beating wasn't, it wasn't just a punishment, it was a spectacle. And I don't, I don't quite understand why, but it, he also made it a public spectacle, like Ammon does in the, the, the book. And, you know, to, today, I think if we saw somebody beat it, doing to us what was, or doing to a child today, what was done to us, I would call the police. You know, I mean, it, 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 it it should have been illegal. It probably was illegal even at the time, but uh, but nobody did anything that I knew about. Uh, and so to give you some examples of what would happen is if we were irreverent, he used that word a lot, uh, at church, he'd drag you by the arm out of the chapel uh, and then beat you with a belt in the foyer. So everybody, everybody in the chapel could see the kid being drug out and they could hear the whipping in the in the foyer and the screams. And I, I, for the life of me, I don't know why somebody didn't do anything about it. Uh, just a domestic, right? That's where that phrase, just a domestic, that, that point really hit home in that when I'm watching Under the Banner of Heaven and in episode four, the banker is talking about, I think it was, uh, Dan, he was talking about Dan Lafferty, or talking to Dan Lafferty, 
uh, about, and he, he reveals this letter mm -hmm. that uh, Brenda apparently had written uh, on behalf of Matilda or helped her Matilda write, uh, and who was Dan's wife. And then that had gone to the, the church president. Uh, I've heard that that actually happened. Okay. Uh, Sharon Weeks could probably clarify that better for you, but I've heard that it did actually happen from Lindsay Hansen Park anyway. And uh, that anyway, in that scene, you get the banker describing it. For one, he's revealing to the patriarch what his wife is doing to, to almost encourage him to take her into control, right? To control her. Uh, and then he's dismissing it to the detective as just a just a domestic. Mm. And I think that that attitude uh, was certainly prevalent in, in my childhood because today, you know, if I saw that, I'd be calling the police. Uh, and, you know, and I hope most people would. Uh, and, you know, another example, my brother Steve was riding a bicycle in the street. I. Uh, and we're in the car, he slams on the brakes. And this is before seatbelts. So when he'd slam on the brakes, everybody would smash into the dashboard if they're in the front seat uh, or the, the seat in front of you in the station wagon we had. Uh, and so everybody would be hurt as a result of it. And then he jumps out, rips Steve off of the bicycle and then beat him in front of the entire neighborhood. And again, nobody called the police. Uh, and, you know, other things, if we were making too much noise in the car, again, he'd slam on the brakes, yank you out of the car, beat you on the side of the street, and oftentimes leave you to walk on your own on the side of the highway, find your own way home. And, and that's what he would tell you. And uh, so definitely a, a troubling way yeah. to be raised. And, and, and this patriarchy, that we were learning at church legitimized this type of abuse. That, and as I think he did treat us as we were property, not as human beings in our own right, with our own feelings and thoughts and desires. Yeah, sounds all too familiar, my friend. You know, I've, I've there's similar things that maybe not as intense I mean, with my family, but I am familiar with other Christians of the evangelical world where. We had people like this, very similar to your stepfather, and yeah. uh, were very patriarchal and did beat their kids. And this is uh, this is not an uncommon thing. <laughs> well, I, I will point out as a social scientist who's looked into this this stuff that their religion, being religious, or particular religious affiliations, do not on the large scale show a correspondence with violence. I think it's important to recognize that as a critique in response to Dan Lafferty. However, there are some cases where that is the case. And, and that case is, is more conservative and authoritarian religious denominations have a greater instance of violence. And particularly when there's a difference between the man's religious views and the woman's religious views and the mother and father uh, or husband and wife, there uh, tends to be more violence when the male has more dogmatic views. So there, there are some correlations that show up in the data and they do center around authoritarian stuff, but religion in general does not make you more violent. But authoritarian religion 
does correspond with more violence. Sure. Yep. I don't know that it causes it. That's a different question. Right. And, and I think that it, it correlates with it. it and I, I think it's probably more a justification than a cause. I think so too. Yep. I think that's yeah. why your father was, the stepfather was attracted to Mormonism. Yeah. And, you know, some of the things they would do after they, after they got married in the temple or sealed in the temple, uh, they would have date nights. They would go to the temple. And, and during those times, we'd be supervised by our step-siblings. Eventually, my oldest stepsister, Sharon, when she turned 18, my stepfather basically kicked her out of the house. He said, either you pay rent or you leave. Uh, she didn't want to pay rent to him anyway. So she left. And that left me with my older stepbrother, Scott and Eugene. Uh, to to be our babysitters. Uh, and in my head, Scott and Eugene were like Layman and Lemuel. Uh, and I, I, I saw them in that kind of way. And uh, their, their favorite thing to do on those nights was play cops and robbers. Uh, and the, I was, we were always the cops, us younger kids, and they were always the robbers. But this wasn't just a make up a pretend game uh they would actually break into cars and houses and we were trying to catch them oh my goodness and uh so they would steal they would steal things from our neighbors uh and uh it was our job to catch them and they would threaten us that you know if we if we ever tell they're going to slit our throat wow you know, and so especially Scott was the one that was really strong on that. And, you know, so we'd play these games. And then if we got ever got close, we never did catch them. Right. Uh, and if we got close, they would react violently. Uh, and so, you know, for one example, uh, I on my patrol, I was patrolling to, and I came across them. They would throw rocks at us and they hit wow. me in the back of the head, split my head open. Uh, a lot of blood. Uh, they made me go in the house, clean it up. Luckily, it stopped bleeding on its own. Uh, but they swore if I told that, you know, they were going to slit my throat. Uh, and so I never did tell. I still have a scar in the back of my head from that. And Scott would, Eugene was very quiet. And, uh, and he was the older of the two. And Scott was the, the, the one that was the talker. And he would tell stories to us. He'd gather us together in the living room like a family council. And he would tell us stories about Charles Manson, the Manson murders, and in detail about how the murders occurred. And I don't know where he learned this stuff, but he, he knew it in detail. Uh, and he would also tell these stories about Hell's Angels. Uh, Hell's Angels being a motorcycle club at the time. And he would say that they would do things like bring their motorcycles in, knock down the front door and bash in a house and they'd throw hand grenades in there. And, uh, and then he'd describe in detail, he'd say, well, if that happened to us, here's what you need to do. Uh, and he said, I, I'm gonna jump on that hand grenade uh, and I'm gonna save all of you. Uh, and you know that's how you would handle the hand grenade. And uh, then he would describe in gory detail what would happen to his body as, it ex as the hand grenade exploded. Wow. just kind of this obsession with with violence and gore uh, he was also quite obsessed with black magic and with pentagrams and that sort of stuff and uh 
and he said that his his dream was to become a mercenary that's what he wanted to do for a living and when i asked well how do you become a mercenary but he says you got to kill somebody uh and i he would talk then about how he would kill people uh and that and i'd say well if you kill somebody you're going to go to jail you can't you can't just kill somebody that's and he says yeah but murders don't really go to jail they go for you know six years at most uh, murderers will go to jail and uh, they get out. You have you ever heard of parole, you know, and all this, you know, he kind of denigrate you. And, uh, in his head, hmm. this was, this was his path to becoming a mercenary uh, and uh, you know, a professional killer basically. Uh, and he, he would talk about how nations would hire people to go around the world and kill. And that's what he wanted to do. Uh, and then he would talk to us in detail about how to kill people. Uh, and he would really emphasize th slicing your throat. Uh, and in, in telling those stories, he, he uh, would say it's really important to go from ear to ear. Uh, and now I know Mormons hearing this are going to hear something here that I'm not necessarily implying. Because this is the first time I heard these stories, he was a 14-year-old recent convert to the LDS faith. Okay, I don't think he got this from the temple. Okay, uh, but there are temple oaths that are brought up in the film, quite controversial, uh, and in the book, uh, of the slitting of the throat from ear to ear for telling. He was using the same threat against us, the same emphasis but his emphasis on why to cut throat to throat was was more effective in killing okay i uh, and uh i don't think they were i don't think he knew about the temple stuff but it was certainly for me later when i went through the temple it was traumatic because it brought that stuff back up hmm. and he talked in or, or he also uh, carried around with him uh, razors and switchblades, and that would become important later in his his trial too. Uh, and so I had Scott, my stepbrother, and then my stepfather Bill. Bill would use ne Jesus and Nephi to justify his violence. Okay, mm. and he would, you know, this this is kind of the patriarchal authority, the Abraham story, that kind of justification scott took the reverse and used satan to justify him mm. uh, and so took kind of more of that satanic attitude and this is i think characteristic of some of the 70s type of stuff too i mean it was part of popular culture and ouija boards and stuff were a really big thing in those days and uh and uh, you know playing the rock music backwards or whatever and having right. songs and those were things that were were a big part of the culture at the time. Uh, and, you know, together though, you got gendered in a racialized world that legitimated abuse. You know, my stepfather was a patriarch. He was in charge. We were to follow. We understood ourselves as white, even with the stories of our Lamanite ancestors, but our whiteness and our masculinity were both precarious. They were something that had to be diligently pursued it wasn't you weren't automatically a man you know but he would tell you you need to man up you need to take it like a man 
you need to, you know, this emphasis on our manhood and on our whiteness so in the terms of going to beat the tar out of you. Uh, the, this was, you know, a way of that racialized and genderized gender violence and a way of protecting your white manhood in particular. And, you know, he was also, I should say, a quite a na white nationalist and then involved in white nationalist militia movements. So mm -hmm. this was an important part of that connection. And the emphasis was always on obedience. You need to obey, obey, obey. And so, and we would hear this at church too. You need to obey, you need to obey. And that's really problematic, right? Because if you're always going to obey, and so if, I, if, if I'm supposed to obey, and the, the patriarch is my stepfather. When my stepfather's at the temple, the patriarch in the home is my stepbrother. And I'm supposed to obey this guy who's telling me we should go rob our neighbors. And, and the, the message that I should just obey. Mm -hmm. I mean, that really problematic uh, messaging. And I think by talking about this stuff, we can, we can learn to recognize that. Yeah. For me, I, I learned two different ways of being at that time. I learned to be diligently obedient around my stepfather, deferent to authority, deference to authority, but delinquent when he wasn't around. Uh, and so at that point in my life, I, I was on a swim team in, uh, in Burley and my friends were starting to get these good suntans and I didn't understand suntanning process. And I wanted to fit in with my friends and I seemed to not tan as well as, as other people. And so in my head, I thought, well, if I misbehave, if I break the rules, then, then I'll turn darker. Oh, wow. So I started deliberately misbehaving so I could get a better suntan. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, obviously my naivety, but, but it makes sense if you understand what we were being taught, what we're reading in the Book of Mormon sure. uh, and, and what we were hearing from our stepfather uh, in, you know, the idea that obedience creates white men and disobedience creates black men, you know, or dark men anyway. uh, or women, I should say, really, because the, 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 you know, you know, he would call us wusses. That was when his mm. were wusses. Uh, you know, so anyway, uh, in 1977, we would move to Pocatello and things would change a little bit at that time. Uh, and uh, Scott and Eugene, my stepbrothers, went to live with their mom in Idaho Falls, which I should note is where the Brenda Lafferty is from, mm. right? Or she was Twin Falls. She was Twin Falls, not Idaho Falls. That's right. But I do have relatives in Twin Falls, too. Uh, and then at, a few years later, they would join the army. Uh, I began using the name Thomas Bean, uh, and it was eventually adopted by my stepfather because I was embarrassed that I had a different name than my parents, you know, because they would call you Brother Bean, you know, Brother Bean, you know, Sister Bean. And then they'd like people would be confused. Why don't why isn't my name Bean? Mm -hmm at church. And so, so I, I started using that and then got adopted. Uh, and that delinquency that I'd experienced in, in Burley, which I think might've been partly influenced by my friends, 
became a rigid obedience in Pocatello. I really became the model Mormon. You know, I became the deacon's corn president, the teacher's corn president, the priest assistant to the bishop or whatever the title was. I was all the leadership positions in, in the, the youth programs, uh, a scout leader. What do they call the Boy Scout? Uh, yeah, I don't remember that, but I was the head of the Boy Scout unit, troop patrol leader or something like that, senior patrol leader. That's what it was. Cool. And uh, so I, my approach became really that rigid obedience. I, again, I, I, I dove into books. Books became my, my life, my escape, if you will. And in some ways, church was also an escape from the abuse at home. Uh, and so I, I think I did have a very positive view of church at the time. Uh, and things got rough in our family, especially in 1981, where the economy was kind of tanking and this time Reagan was coming in and he's laying all these people off and cut, doing all the cutting government spending. Well, if you're in the public sector and hospitals and stuff, that was having trickle down effects. Uh, not not the kind Reagan emphasized that's going to lift you up, but trickle down effects in terms of my stepfather lost his job uh, because of budget cuts. And uh, he's then trying to find work and uh, looking for different jobs. And, uh, and it, 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 was, it was difficult. Uh, well, that summer, that 1981, Scott, who's now six foot five, I should say that he was actually kind of the runt before. And when in that couple of years when he was living away, he just, and especially when he's in the army, he just grew six inches when he was in the army. And it, it kind of a late bloomer that way, but it became really tall. And my stepfather was six foot two. So, uh, and so Scott, this six foot five guy comes walking down the street. I'm out delivering newspapers because uh, I was a newspaper boy, he comes walking down the street and he's really tall. Uh, and he's telling a story of getting kicked out of the army, getting in a fight in a bar, maybe killed somebody uh, and needing a place to hide. Uh, and uh, I went out and finished my paper route. And when I, when we got home uh, later, I learned that his father had turned him away saying he wouldn't harbor a fugitive. Uh, and so Scott went back to Idaho Falls, where he began stockpiling weapons and dealing drugs. Mm. Uh, and uh, in October of that year, my stepfather made plans to move our family to Rockland, Idaho, where we were going to live on a farm and off the grid. I was, I was trying to go back to my journals as I was preparing for this and try to figure out what was I saying at the time about my brother and what did I remember at the time? And this is one of the, the memories that, that I, I, it was there, but I didn't associate it as the same time. Hmm. Uh, so the same month that, uh, that we learn about this murder, I, we're getting ready to go live off the grid, kind of like the Lafferty's did. Hmm. Uh, and uh, we're, that didn't actually come to fruition. Uh, turned out that that, situation with the employer at the farm was not quite uh as feasible as looked as as he might have hoped mm. and so that didn't pan out but it was interesting that in my journal the entry that that was 
right at the same time. On October 28th of 1981, my brother Scott Bean and a man by the name of William Caudill murdered uh, a 17-year-old Neil Walker in Idaho Falls. Now, the way I recorded it in my journal, and this is also in the transcripts of the trials, which I, or the, the trial stuff I looked at too, to remind myself, uh, Scott suspected Neil of, of being a narc, is the term he used, a narcotics agent uh, who might turn him in for dealing drugs. I later interacted with, I was on the debate team in, in high school, and one of the debate coaches turned out to be one of the prosecutors. She'd worked as an, as a, I think, as an, uh, as one of the assistants in the prosecutor's office, and she recognized my name and and asked me if I was any relation to Scott Bean, and 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 I told her yes, I was. And so we got into this long conversation about her role as the in the prosecutor's office, and she said that she thought there was also a romant a three-way romantic thing going on between them, that that this guy Neil Walker had apparently. Uh, proposition Scott's girlfriend or something. I never heard that from Scott, but the, that's what I heard later from, <clears throat> from her. Hmm. And again, this is another detail that came out in my journal. I mentioned the, the cutting the, the throat, that the murder was by slicing the throat. So, you know, very similar to the, the killing of the baby in the Lafferty family. Uh, and uh, he also stabbed him in the chest and with a razor, again, he carried that razor around with him around his neck. Uh, and my brother, Scott, when he was arrested, confessed. And remember his plan, he told us he's, he was gonna be, he was gonna kill somebody so that he could become a mercenary. And he thought he'd go to jail for a little while. If he confessed, probably thought that would help get a lighter sentence. Uh, and, you know, he wasn't ashamed at all of what he'd done. Uh, hmm. that he's confessed. And of course that came back to haunt him in the trial. Uh, and uh, he's eventually sentenced to life in prison without parole. So his idea of being in prison for six years, uh, that didn't turn out uh, life without parole. And in life in Idaho at the time without parole was 20 years. Uh, and uh, he later uh, appeals it because they, he and William Cottle had been tried together and there were some biases that they thought had got into the process. So he appealed and later parole would be restored on appeal. He'd get a new sentencing and get uh, parole. But he would serve that life sentence and uh, get out. Uh, and he's now in Boise, Idaho. I don't talk to him much at, at all, really, at his father's funeral. I tried to visit him once in jail and he told me I was the only one that ever did. The only, the only family member that ever tried to visit him, but they had transported him to Texas for some reason to save money. And so he wasn't in Boise when I was coming through. Hmm. Uh, and kind of sad. Yeah. Uh, for me at the time, the publicity around the trial was an incredible embarrassment, especially at school. Uh, now, I was fortunate I didn't have a TV, so I didn't see the coverage on TV, but I was a newspaper boy, and so I read it every day in the, in the newspaper. I followed the story. Uh, and, you know, I think that probably paid a role later in me wanting to change my name back to my birth name, but sure. also the, 
the tortured relationship with my stepfather was probably the bigger motivating factor. Uh, and, you know, for me, church had been a refuge from, from violence until a seminary teacher in Pocatello kicked a student. And when that happened, I think I, I reacted by it, directing my frustration with my family situation uh, towards the church. And so I, I told my mother I wouldn't go back to seminary until they fired that seminary teacher. What I wanted her to do was get rid of a stepfather, you know, hmm. uh, and, you know, so it was an indirect way to say that's what you need to do. Of course, she didn't do either. Right. It didn't advocate on my behalf with the seminary teacher. In fact, defended the seminary teacher. And so I refused to go to seminary and I would just go sit in the library uh, instead of going to seminary. You know? Now, I just have a quick question. You know, was your mother a victim of domestic violence as well? That's a really good question. One I puzzled over this, okay, because I never saw her, I never saw Bill strike her, okay? Uh, however, I did hear fights. So I would be in my room reading, especially in that, those first years, and I would hear dishes flying, and I would hear yelling and screaming. I don't know if that was accompanied by physical violence. Uh, I've wondered. And I never did ask my mom. Uh, someday I want to read her journals and, and see what, what she wrote about it. Uh, but I can't, whether or not he actually physically struck her, I don't think there's a more abusive thing to do to a mother than to beat her children in front yeah. of her. You know, and it, it, that probably hurt worse than if he'd hit her. And so, yes, he was abusive to her, but whether or not he actually struck her, I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, we moved to St. Anthony, Idaho, between my junior and senior year of high school. And my senior year of high school, uh, the child abuse had continued, but by now I was you know, 16 years old, 17 years old, and I could start to defend myself. And, uh, and it, it continued until I fought back. Uh, and that's part of what I write about in, in this book is, is kind of where this book, the story here starts is with, uh, I, basically had gotten into an argument with my mother and used some words I regret now and the way I addressed her. And uh, she responded by calling my stepfather and he came and, you know, takes off his glasses and was like, you want to fight? Well, come on, let's fight, you know, and gets his fists up and, uh, and, you know, start swinging at me. And so I uh, wrestled him to the ground. I lunged down below his fists and wrestled him to the ground. And I held his face to the ground. And I, I said, look, I can take you now. I don't want to fight. Uh, I'm going to let you go. But don't you ever do this to me again. And uh, when I released him, he lunged at me 
to knock me down the stairs and would have knocked me down the stairs because we were at the top of the stairs when, when this happened. If it wasn't for my brother intervening and uh, basically deflecting my falling down the stairs to, to falling down on the ground. Uh, and my brother, Greg, and I stormed out of the house uh, with them yelling after us and, uh, and left. And then ironically, my stepfather called the sheriff on us for running away after we fought back. Uh, and so we got picked up by the deputy uh, as we were walking down the road. We lived out in the country by St. Anthony, by Egan area. And uh, the, the sheriff deputy, I told him about the abuse. We reported the abuse to the sheriff. And he, his response, is he told us to sleep on it and have a family council in the morning. No idea what the family council meant to us, right? Mm. Uh, and, you know, after one more fight with him, uh, a little while later over music, turning out the music on too loud, uh, I, that's the one and only time I punched him and it drew blood. It, it, was, it was pretty bad. And you detailed in the book, you talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. And after that, he wouldn't talk to me. He basically severed our relationship. Uh, he, if, if I was, if he wanted to had something to say to me, he would tell my mom and have her tell me. And he would, you know, would talk about me in the third person, but would not address me. And, uh, and I avoided him as much as possible too. And, you know, that was just the rest of the year. And I was turning 18 when I turned 18, the rule in the house was you're gone or you pay rent. And I wasn't about to pay rent to him. And as soon as I turned 18, I also changed my surname back to Murphy. Uh, I actually started the process before I turned 18. So I was ready to go. Mm. Uh, and then I uh, moved out on my own. I would go to college and so on. And that's, that's the, the kind of the story I tell here. I tell about meeting Carrie, my, Carrie Sumner, my wife. We both bonded over sharing stories of childhood abuse and about native ancestors. Uh, tell the story of Carrie's suspension from Rex College and our civil marriage as a former rebellion. And, you know, for us, we made the promise that we were going to break the cycle of abuse and never use physical punishment on any of our children. We only ended up having one. But, you know, we said we were never going to even spank our children. Uh, and that was a promise we made to each other. And we ended up, uh, I ended up dropping out of college. I went to Utah State for the first year, which I, we're going to be in Logan, Utah, yeah. both you and I in a couple of weeks. So right. I'll have to show you around a little of Logan. If you want. Oh, yeah, please do. And, uh, but I was only there for a year and I, I dropped out. And because uh, Carrie got pregnant. Uh, and so we, I joined the army and her pregnancy coincided, her due date coincided with my training in the, the army. And so we moved back to Davenport where she was from, Davenport, Iowa. And uh, she stayed with her parents while I was in basic training and, and advanced individual training. And that's when our daughter was born in 1986. And then the important part of the story I want to share here on this is what happened in the temple. And because that relates to this under the banner of heaven, I know that's a controversial 
part of the show is showing the, the stuff of the temple. And I, I really struggle over whether I think that's right or wrong or, and I'm, I'm, I'm a, a mixed emotions on this. Okay. For one, as an anthropologist who's participated in a number of sacred ceremonies with native people, I would not share the details of those ceremonies with the public. Okay. I respect the privacy. But there is a situation where I would, and that's if a crime was committed or if it, if, if it was related to a crime. And that's where the, the Mormon temple ceremony gets into a difficult situation because there are worlds of, of vengeance of uh, what are called blood oaths. Even when I, I went through and uh, the, let's see, when did I go through, 80? 88. I went through in 88. And then 91, they, they took out the, the, all those cutting your throat and all that stuff uh, that were basically blood ulcers, the way I learned to describe them. Uh, and so I do think when, when, when criminal activity is involved, that, that protection of sacredness uh, has to be compromised. You know, and I, so I do think in this case where there is a connection between the temple ceremony and the, the murder, yeah. the murders. I mean, you could say the same too, even with the William Morgan affair, that that perhaps yeah. is a tie-in, you know. With yeah, where that actually occurred, I think, I think certainly it's legitimate for the prosecutors to address this in the court. And so then a, somebody telling the story of the murder, it seems appropriate to address it there. Whether or not you want to show the ceremony, that, that yeah. maybe that's taking it a little too far, but there needed to be a way to address it. Sure. And that's the way they, they chose to do it. Now, I can understand they probably, that, that would, that's probably got a lot more viewers as a result of it, the controversy. Absolutely. So they, you know, I, I might've done it a little different, but uh, the, for me personally and sharing my story, though the temple does play an important role because not only would I get exposed to those uh, bloody oaths that I was asked to make that were reminiscent, not just of, uh, that were for me reminiscent of my childhood where my older brother who becomes a murderer is talking about the details of how to kill people to by coincidence have them be similar. Uh, so that was traumatic. And the fact that why would we do that? Why would we as Mormons, you know, vow vengeance or vow threaten to, uh, to harm ourselves over obedience and disobedience or telling or not telling? And it just seemed like a little over the top to me. Uh, and so here I'm coming out because I did, when I went to the ceremony, I did the washings and anointings and the endowment and the temple sealing all in the same day, sequential back to back. And uh, so we'd been in the temple for a few hours, our, several hours, and our daughter had been in a nursery. Uh, and we're in the sealing room uh, to get sealed to our daughter. Uh, and they bring her out of the nursery and uh, she comes in this room and sees some familiar faces, but everybody's dressed in white. And, uh, you, you know, she sees me and she says, that's my dad, you know, 
and kind of excited to see me and then sees her mom and she sees her mom, she starts crying and she starts crying because she was hungry. She, she was still nursing and she hadn't nursed in hours. And uh, so she starts to cry and uh, they try to calm her down and she just cries more. And so my wife, Carrie, takes her out into the hall and I thought she was going to nurse her, but she was just going to calm her down. Uh, I think in retrospect, she wishes she'd nursed her, but uh, the, she brings her back in uh, to the room uh, after she'd calmed her down. And uh, then they tell her to, to come up to the, the altar and, and she sees everybody in white. She get all of a sudden she starts screaming again. She gets really traumatized and starts screaming. And uh, the officiator tells me, we've got to move on. We've got a schedule to keep. Uh, we can't just keep waiting for her to, to calm down. Uh, and he told me, I want you to hold her down. Now, remember that Carrie and I had promised we would never use physical punishment. Is this punishment to hold her down? I think in my mind at the time, I'm like, well, that's not, I'm not hitting her. I'm not spanking her. I'm holding her down. But in retrospect, I felt like I violated that promise I made to Carrie that we would never use physical punishment against our own child. I held her down and she screamed while she was sealed to us for time and eternity. And in my head, Abraham sacrificing Isaac on the altars coming to mind. Here I am in the temple and I'm being asked mm. to hold my daughter down against her will wow. yeah. at the altar. And I did it. You obeyed. I did what I was told to do. Yep. And then afterwards, the officiator, he says, we wouldn't normally ask you to do that to a child, but this is such an, so important. Mm. And I was like, and I thought about that and that's exactly what's at the root of our violence, right? It's so important that we be obedient. It's so important. Our eternal destiny is at, at stake. That's the justification that's used for violence. It's so important that Ron and Dan Lafferty I can have their polygamous wives that they're going to knock off Brenda Lafferty and her baby. It's so important. Uh, and it, it really hit me that that it, it's, and that, that, that is what John Krakauer is trying to say about kind of dogmatic religion. And, and I, does it cause it? I don't, I don't know about that, but it's a powerful justification sure. for those who, for whatever reason, are willing to harm other people. Yeah. yeah. Wow, powerful man, man. I, I read that entry in your book because you as you just told the story to my audience and I had to read it. And I was just like, wow, very powerful story that you have to tell, Thomas. And um, and I'm I'm glad that you're sharing this uh, these these uh, deeply personal things, um, and and telling your story and how the under the banner of the heaven has kind of provided that avenue to have that conversation. 
And I do want to kind of wrap this up. This course it took longer than I thought it was oh, going to. Oh, of course, again. Thomas. It's going to, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. The, my audience loves you. <laughs> yeah, but I want to kind of bring it bring it yeah. back to how my view is. There's an important component to this yes. story. There was a period in my life, uh, not long after I had been through the temple, that that was kind of like a really big crack in my shelf, as Mormons say. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I started associating Mormonism generally with violence, okay, and religion with violence. So I was thinking very much like John Krakauer is, is caricatured as, as doing. I, and, and I became that, that person in terms of blaming religion for everything bad in the world. And everything and, bad in my world. And that's really what the new atheists were doing too. Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens were taking the same tack when it came to religion post 9 11. Yeah. And I, I did this, this was before 9 11, but yeah. I, I did this in my own head. But it was actually going to college that, that changed that when I went back to college. And particularly, I started to study in anthropology and religion. And we talked a little bit about this in my other interview with you. So those who are curious can go back to that first interview. And I, I think you called it and LDS anthropologist becomes an evangelical celebrity. Yes. But I talk a little bit about my study of religion and how it really changed my, my view. And what I'll say here is that a, an approach, a culturally relative approach, replaced a worldview of good and evil. And what I mean by a culturally relative, I don't mean that anything goes, but what I mean is that we want to understand religious people in their own perspective. We want to understand cultures in their own perspective, uh, not just an outsider point of view. And the outsider point of views are important, but we want to bring the two together in a more balanced way. And it, it, the way I had grown up is that Mormons were good, everyone else was bad. The evangelicals were evil, Mormons were good. Uh, Lamanites were evil. Nephites were good. Uh, the, that point of view is, is so short-sighted, right? And, it, and so I rejected it initially by just reversing. And I see a lot of this still in the ex-Mormon community is people just reverse it. Now Mormons are all evil and, and ex-Mormons are good. Yep. And uh, I think Dustin Lance Black is trying to be careful not to go there. By trying to portray the different views. And I think Linson, again, Lindsay Hanson Park, I think has been a good influence in this and in, in trying to show the diversity of Mormons. Mormons aren't all the same. We're, we're different. Uh, it, there are pacifists as well as murderers uh, amongst us, just like there is in any other community. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that I think is the important thing to, to emphasize that it led to a change in, in, in my life and perspective by trying to, trying not to view the world uh, through the eyes of some people as good and some people as evil. I think all people are complex. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, even though I suffered tremendously at the hands of my stepfather, later in life, he apologized. Really? So, so did my mother. It actually took my mother longer to apologize than my stepfather. Uh, did you forgive him? And 
I yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I forgave them. Yeah, I, I still do. I don't. Uh, I don't harbor uh, judgments. However, it doesn't mean that I wasn't cautious about what, my, how my daughter would interact with them. Mm. Okay. You know, I'm I'm still going to protect my my daughter from from their abuses. Even even and and the thing is, even though my mother apologized to me, I think this it, it's really problematic to me that she didn't do a similar thing with some of my siblings, mm. uh, and that. Uh, even though I experienced that, some of them never, never got that. Mm. And uh, they continue to suffer as a result of it. They still feel the pain. Mm. Wow. Wow. Thomas, I uh, appreciate you coming on and talking about all this today. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a quite a powerful story. And, and, you know, when I said post 9-11, you could also talk about post 9-11 as Mount Mendel's massacre. Yeah. Also informing your your view on that as as well. Um, was there any anything else you wanted to touch on before we uh, wrap things up? No, I think that's about it. I will say that uh, just as a follow up to to some of our previous interviews, that I'm delighted to learn that a major anthropology journal is going to publish an article I wrote after we talked about. Uh, critique, we did a critique of the Heartland model uh, on your show. That's now been accepted. I co-authored with a couple of other people, Simon Southerton and Angela Baca, an wow. article that takes kind of what I said in your show, some additional details and some contributions for Angelo and Simon, uh, and responds to the Heartland model. It's going to be coming out in a major anthropology journal this fall. Oh, wow. And maybe we can talk again at that time. Absolutely, dude. <laughs> uh, and I also have an article on, on the Popovus, or uh, sometimes called the Popovu, mm -hmm. uh, and the Mesoamerican model that's coming out in the Journal of Mormon History this summer. I'll be speaking about that at the Mormon History Association in a couple of weeks. And Logan, we'd love to see some of your viewers there. Uh, and I know you just did a promo for the MHA. Uh, and so I'll be talking about my Laban's ghost, or I mean, my uh, Popovu article there. And I will also be talking about that one on the Book of Mormon Perspectives uh, group on July 11th. Yeah. So, so yeah, those are great. just some, some upcoming. Wonderful. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be interviewing um, in a few days, Paul DeBarth, Paul DeBarth who's uh, who helped organized the Book of Mormon Perspectives Forum, which meets every Monday night, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. You're all welcome. I've provided links on my Facebook page as well. Um, and I'm going to be interviewing him because they're doing the I Dig Nauvoo. Uh, he's the head mm -hmm. archaeologist uh, for it. And so I'm actually planning now to probably, after MHA, I think I'm, Rick Bennett and I are going to hop on a plane to St. Louis and Evangelical Jeff McCullough of Saints, uh, uh, Saints, hello, Saints is going to pick us up at the airport, and we're going to go up to Nauvoo and maybe do some filming. So it's all very exciting, all that's coming down. Yeah, I would love to do that dig with him. You know, I've done archaeology digs myself, so uh, I'd love to to pitch in one of these times. Probably not this summer, though. Well, it's a great service of Paul DeBarth. He's affiliated with the Community of Christ, and of course, I will be at. Uh, are you going to be at John Whitmer 
uh, by chance in the fall? No, I will not. Okay, well, I'll be there too. I'll be there myself. So look me up there too. So yes, this is the thing. Like I see, I just saw the poster hanging in the back, so I couldn't help but pull this guy yeah. out. Um, this is the right, poster for right the here. Yep, right there. And that was given to us last year at the end of last year's conference. And Patrick Mason announced the, the ice cream giveaway and everybody got all excited. I remember all that. It was great. It was eye-opening just to see that world. Um, Thomas, this was great. I think that we had a very important episode today. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for hosting the show and giving us a chance to talk about these difficult issues. Yeah, yeah. And I love you, man. You're just so awesome. And uh, your wife's an inspiration. And uh, yes. God bless her, man. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> so yes. folks, I just want to remind my audience to don't forget to like and subscribe and hit the notification button for when a new episode comes out. We're on all the major podcast formats now. Uh, so you can now listen to us about a, about a quarter of the audience now is listening to us via the podcast format. Um, let's see, mormonbookreviews at gmail.com. If you wish to contact me, don't forget the merch store is open. If you wish to support the channel, you can support us financially on both the Patreon or uh, also as well as PayPal. And I do want to thank all my Patreons and PayPal supporters. And of course, now on YouTube, we're generating revenue through ads. So watch some of those ads because I think I get more money if you watch the ad. I'm not telling you don't watch them every single one of them, but maybe watch some occasional ad, especially if it's one that's interesting to you because I do think that helps with the channel too. Either way, y'all have yourself a great day.